Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest Mark Leverage podcast, this one being for November 2018. Last month, I got together with three of my closest magic friends, Paul Prager, Stuart Bowie and Chris Payne. And the four of us have known each other for getting on for 40 years. And once a year, although we meet two or three times a year, once a year, we get together at Stuart's house in Cumbria for a sort of little, uh, a little retreat, like a magic retreat, where for two or three days, we basically talk and do magic and not much else. It's a fantastic opportunity for us all to bounce ideas off each other and to just discuss things generally about ma- the magic world. And it always throws up some very interesting conversations. We sort of jokingly call ourselves the CCC, which stands for the Cumbrian Conjurers Collective. Although I have to tell you, and this is very exciting news, you heard it here first, we have now slightly rebranded to the O. CCC, which is, stands for the Occasional Cumbrian Conjurers Collectors, because we basically only get together for two or three days once a year. However, reason for telling you this is because when we're going to have this meeting, we, we tend to exchange in advance one or two emails, and we will suggest questions or topics that we are hoping to talk about. And it gives everybody the chance to have a think about the questions, and then at some point over the two or three day period, We'll get round to discussing it. And several of the topics that um, I'm going to talk about in this podcast came as a result of conversations and questions that we had over the latest meeting. It is so much fun to do something like this because getting together so much these days is done um, where you interact with people through the computer that to actually get together and sit down and actually watch and develop magic and talk about magic in great depth. Um, it's it's such a rare thing to be able to do that uninterrupted. And we're all of sort of, of an age that, although I'm not retired, the other three are all retired. I'm sort of uh, doing less than I used to through choice. So we have plenty of time to to take a period like this. And we really enjoy it. And it's, it's a whole lot of fun. We have a lot of laughs. And... Uh, But we also get through a lot of great things, too. And nearly always everybody will come away from one of these little meetings with something that they had, say, like a problem, if you like, with a particular trick that they brought to the to the group. The group kind of solves it or makes suggestions and that person will then go away. And as a result of that, often will make some what they would hope, hopefully consider to be tangible progress in the development of the particular trick that was under discussion. And that happened again this time. So we always look forward to it. And I say we do get together for brief periods two or three times uh, at other times during the year. But it's it's this collected the Cumbrian Conjurers Collective meeting that uh, that's the most fun. Actually, while we were up there, it just so happened that the the local Cumbrian Magic Society had a meeting on the Tuesday evening. And so and, and as Stuart is a, is a member there and one of the people who originally helped to organize he, the uh, the um, the club, he said, would we like to, to present an evening? So Paul and Chris and I did. We did sort of performance and I did a bit of a mini lecture. So uh, and that went down really well. And it was really nice to, to have that as a focus for our for our stay as well and to meet some of the other people who are who are magicians in the local area. So that's the OCCC then. It's had its meeting and uh, hopefully we'll be back for more next year. I've talked before on these podcasts about a couple of online 
magic show sort of agencies, if you like. Um, Bark, one is called, and the other is called Add to Event, which um, help the lay public to find magicians for their particular event. And all people need to do is they go to the website, they fill out the details of what they have in mind just once, and then all of us who are registered with these particular online agencies, then if it's relevant to our area and to our particular um, type of show that we do, we'll receive details and we can respond and put forward a case for the person booking us. It's a way of, of um, using the clout of a big website, of course, to send potential customers to us. And um, the way that they make money out of it, of course, is that they sell you credits. And each time that you respond to an inquiry, it costs you so many credits. So, uh, I mean, it's it's fair enough. It's a, it's a reasonable system. In a way, it's almost replaced the um, sort of normal theatrical agent where people were used to would go to a, an agency and would say, well, we're looking for a magician. They would look on their books. Well, this now is taking this online and taking it a stage further because it allows almost anybody who registers with them to quote for shows and to get inquiries. Now, the, although it sounds like a good thing, it, it, and in some ways it is, in other ways it's not, because unfortunately what tends to happen is um, it tends to drive, I think anyway, drive fees down. Because what will happen is, and Bark is particularly bad with this, because I've mentioned before that, that Bark actually puts for the customer to see suggested bands of price that they might expect. Um, and I think this is disingenuous because they are not accurate prices and there's, there's, I don't, I fail to see how they know what is going to be the right price or what is even a reasonable price. And all it does is sets up, I think, false expectations in the customers when they see, oh gosh, I can have a magician all evening for a hundred pounds or something. It's just ridiculous. Add to event doesn't do that, which is to their credit. But because it's very a very easy way for people to make an inquiry. They tend to, because all they have to do is they just find the website, they put their details in once, they send it off, and then they could get back six, seven, eight different quotes. So for the just doing it once, they'll get eight quotes. And if they're interested in finding the cheapest, it's very simple. You just look down the list. Okay, that one's the cheapest. We'll have him. Now, the problem with this is clearly that if people are going to buy for the cheapest, they're going to compare and find the cheapest price. If you're not at the bottom of the of the pile in terms of fees, you, you're not going to get many shows, or at least potentially you're not going to get many. But um, the other thing about this is that in, in terms, it makes the customer, the bookers, if you like, a bit lazy because if they didn't have that website and they had to try and find a magician, they would probably do a Google search in their local area for the type of magician they're looking for. And then, of course, all our individual sites would then come up and they would have to go to the various sites and have a little look, see what whether they like the look of the person, what the person said. They would then have to either send an email to that person or fill in their online form in order to, to get an inquiry. And you'd have to do this individually and separately for each person that you wanted to um, apply to. So the average person is not going to do six, seven or eight of these, I would suspect. They'll probably do a couple, maybe three. Whereas if they do it through Add to Event or, or a Bark, for, the, for just doing it once, they can get a whole hatful. 
And, and so that means that every time that we as entertainers put in our quote, we are always going to be competing with perhaps far more people than we would have been quote, quoting against had it just come directly off the web, perhaps, because we would have been semi-selected already rather than just be one of a whole list. And here's the rub of it. Because the people haven't, who go through these agencies, they don't know in great detail what each of the magicians actually can, can perform and what their levels of experience are, really. I mean, yes, there are details there, but they're relatively brief. They don't look at a complete website, perhaps. Because of that, then they simply are drawn to, well, you know, they all say the same thing, so perhaps I'll get the cheapest or get the middling one or whatever. It, it comes down to comparing something that you can't actually compare because no two magicians are the same. They have different levels of experience. They offer different types of, of quality of service uh, and performance standard. So to just look at the prices, unless you don't care about the standard and you just want to get the cheapest one, uh, it's not a very good way to, to choose someone for a, an important event. And I think as, as a result of this... Um, because you're always competing with, with more people than you would normally um, be likely to do, it, the temptation is, if you don't get bookings, might be to start putting your prices down, trying to find the price point at which people start to bite. And if they're comparing with eight other magicians, that could turn out to be very, very low. So I, I, I'm not sure whether I like these or not. On the one hand, they do give you the inquiries and give you a chance to, to get in contact with people who might not otherwise have made an inquiry with you. But as the disadvantages that I've just, I've just uh, explained, maybe that's not necessarily a, go a good thing. So have you ever used either of these agencies? And what are your experiences? Do you like them? And have you done a lot of work with them? One of the questions that we considered at the OCCC meeting I was mentioning earlier was um, whether it matters that explanations of a lot of the magic tricks that we perhaps might be doing in our acts are now available to anybody who cares to look online. You know, endless YouTube videos of how to do this trick and how to do that trick. And there are, well, possibly some people anyway, who worry that you might be entertaining a group of people at a table and you show a trick and they fear that they might literally while you're performing a trick, be looking up how it's done on their phone. Um, I, I'm not too worried about this, if I'm truly honest, because, well, first of all, people don't know what the tricks are called. You know, we, we know where they are. We know it's the flying ring or whatever. But they don't know what it is. Yeah, they can put in a search term and describe a trick and they might get the one that you're doing. But I don't think most people, certainly unless you're incredibly boring when you perform and they're really looking for something else to do, I don't think anybody's actually going to look it up while you're performing. I mean, that, even if they could find it, they wouldn't be able to read it and understand it by the time you'd finished and moved on. So I can't see that that's a problem at all. But really and truly, most people, most lay people, I don't think they're that interested in how the tricks are done. Well, let's put it this way. They're not passionately interested in finding out the intense detail, the minutiae of how the trick works. You know, if, if a layperson can come up with an explanation such as, oh, that must have come down your sleeve, and then he's happy with that as an explanation, then he's really not interested in the real explanation, probably, for how the trick that you've just done is really done. 
I just don't think lay people had that much of an overview of how these things might work. I mean, they always say, oh, how on earth do you do that? Or I'd love to know how you do that. Or oh, magicians really annoy me because I don't know how they do their tricks. But the fact of the matter is, I don't think most lay people are that bothered. In fact, some lay people will say to you, um, oh, I don't like to know how the tricks are done because it spoils it. So they actually go around the other way. that They deliberately avoid finding out how it's done because they enjoy being fooled. So does it matter that all our tricks are possibly explained online? I think not. I think if somebody is prepared to seize, let's say, a card trick and then goes and does research online to find out how that card trick is done, I think it pro- what it probably indicates is that that person has got a, perhaps a genuine interest. You know, somebody who's not a magician yet, but is kind of fascinated by it and wants to know some of the secrets, and you never know, may become converted to having a go themselves if, um, if they find out how some tricks are done. The other thing is, of course, that as we all know, although lay people don't always appreciate this, but as we all know, for any given trick, there are multiple different ways that you could achieve it. So when the masked magician was revealing the way to do one trick or another, and people used to say, well, does it bother you that the masked magician? Well, actually, no, I couldn't care less because really I'm probably not using that method anyway. And even if I am, half the time the lay people wouldn't recognise that I was. So does it matter? I would say no, it doesn't really matter that much. There's always been, we always, magicians have always got hung up about exposure, haven't they? And usually it's by making a big song and dance about the fact that people are giving away tricks that creates the interest in the fact that people are giving away tricks and the secrets. Whereas if you just ignore it and laugh and just carry on anyway, then most of the time, as I say, I don't think the lay people are even that bothered. Now, having just mentioned about whether lay people themselves get uh, interested in how we do our tricks, in many ways, it's us as magicians who get hung up on moves and methodology. Let's face it, for uh, for most people, especially those perhaps involved in something like card magic, where there, there are so many different uh, principles and ideas and moves that you can learn, it's very easy to become obsessed with the actual moves. And I think sometimes as performers, it's all too easy for us to um, get too concerned with the minutiae of how we're achieving a trick and not thinking um, in a broad enough way about whether the presentation is good enough, the pattern is good enough for lay people, and whether the actual trick itself is presented in a way that's engaging and exciting and fun for them. All the time, some magicians seem to be obsessing about changing slightly the moves in order to make it more clever or in order to uh, improve, in inverted commas, the way the trick is done. Although, actually, from the outside looking in, from the layperson looking at the magic trick, hopefully they won't notice the difference. And this this was brought home to me because um, I was watching um, a dem on YouTube. Uh, it was from the, the, uh, the Masters of Illusion TV show. And it was a performance by Chris Funk. Uh, and, he, and it was Card Shark who were publicising this particular YouTube clip because it used their parlor decks. And I had a few moments to spare. I thought, oh, I'll have a look. So I watched Chris Funk's uh, presentation. And it was a rising card using a parlor deck. And he, he uses a violin. He, and the presentation is very light. 
it's very entertaining. Uh, it, he's quite amusing in, and, and interesting in the way that he presents it. And the trick itself, using the violin to make the cards rise. The last one with the card box apparently balanced on the, the end of the violin. It, it, it was different. Uh, but when you looked at it from a magician's point of view, and you looked at, for instance, he had three cards selected. He had three cards selected using the same force three times in a row. He made no apology for it. He didn't even really, certainly in terms of the way it was filmed, didn't do it very well. It flashed every single time he did it, if you know what to look for. But because he was presenting, he was making jokes, it was fast, it was upbeat, I don't think any of the lay people, A, cared, or B, noticed, or ever it never occurred to them, perhaps, that he was forcing cards on them. And even if it did occur to them, then I don't think they would then put together all the bits to think that that somehow was how their cards rose from the, the box deck later on. The two things weren't connected. And I think what it showed to me, uh, and illustrated very well, in fact, is that simple, in this case, forces, a simple force done at speed, with confidence, with presentation and a, and a couple of laughs, you can get, a, get away with it. You can use it. And, it. and it really doesn't matter. He could quite easily have done, and some a lot of magicians would do this, three different forces to force the three necessary cards. But that might well have slowed down the procedure. In fact, it might have looked more suspicious by doing three, getting a card selected in three different ways than it did just by him doing the same force three times. He'd chosen a simple, direct way and he just stuck to it. And it didn't affect the trick one bit. And I think that's a really good example of how we shouldn't get necessarily hung up on the moves if the rest of it, the presentation, the the performance, the personality of the of the person of the magician himself, and uh, the actual premise of the trick. If all of these things are interesting to the audience, then the fact that he used three forces the same in a row is absolutely completely irrelevant. Now, as one of the review team who do the product reviews in Magic Scene magazine. I get to see a lot of trick instructions, 99% of which these days, of course, are video. And originally, literally video would come in a big package with, with the product. Then it became a DVD. And now, of course, in more recent times, it's nearly all of them don't come as DVDs anymore. They come as a, a web link, which might be a downloadable file, or it might be just one that you're able to, a streaming video that you're able to watch online and just hope that the person who's put it there doesn't disappear the next time you want to have a look at it. So um, all of this is uh, a trend that has got more and more and more. And while on the, on the one hand, online video and having video instructions for certain types of trick, I think is very beneficial, there are other times when it's actually a hindrance. Now, people often say, oh, books are better than, than, than sort of video or DVD because... With a book, you have to use your imagination. Well, I've discussed this before. I'm not totally convinced by that argument because I think some people have no imagination and do need a bit more help. Or they don't have the knowledge of moves that they can visualise how things are supposed to be done from the written word. And as a result, they misinterpret it and actually do it worse. Whereas if they see the technique performed competently on, on video, then they get an idea of what it's supposed to look like 
And although there is the danger, as is often expressed, that they will simply copy the presentation of the person who they see perform it, again, I'm not sure that's always the case, but at least they will have seen how the moves hold together. But where it's... So that's advantageous. But where I think it becomes a bit disadvantageous is when you start to use video simply as a quick way, a lazy way, if you like, to impart information. Now, sometimes we get tricks and the, 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 the video segment, the instructions, the, the, um, the bit that tells you everything you need to know about the preparation of the props and the, and the presentation and the method and everything else, and it might last six minutes. Now, there's nothing wrong with it lasting six minutes. I'm not saying that videos have to be long. In fact, sometimes they're too long. People waffle on and don't get to the point. And because they're not good teachers, they don't know how to put across something on video that is succinct to the point so that people can learn it easily. So it's not the length. It's the fact that in six minutes, if you can impart all that information, then quite frankly, if you want to deliver the instructions electronically, then surely a written PDF with a couple of illustrations would do just as well. It doesn't have to be video. Now, I think what the result of this is, is that everybody thinks that they're being clever, perhaps, to produce videos for literally everything, whereas, in fact, they're just being lazy. Because once you've got the thing set up, if you know what you're doing with camera work, it it encourages people to dash off um, instructions for tricks perhaps too quickly, without proper thought about how you're going to show it, without proper thought about how you're going to explain it. It's all done in a, in a rush. And it's easier to do that when you're filming something than it is when you have to write it. When you write something, yes, you can write shoddy instructions, but at least you have to think a bit more about what you're saying. Whereas when it's video, people ramble on and on and on, Sometimes they say missing out whole chunks of the things that they should be telling the customer and telling him too much about other aspects that aren't actually relevant. So I'm a bit sort of ambivalent about whether video is a good thing or not. I think it can be, but I think that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact. And and it was interesting about the, the recent thing with Wayne Dobson, where he announced that he was going to go back to providing written instructions again. Um, I mean, that could just be a marketing ploy on his part just to be a little bit different which is kind of funny you you go backwards in order to be more modern if you see what I mean but there is a a point to it and that is that things don't always need video and a lot of his tricks in particular uh, his methods are brilliantly simple you can describe it in half a dozen lines sometimes of text why would you want to produce a video so I hope that other manufacturers will not get totally obsessed with video it doesn't mean that it's going to make better instructions and sometimes it could be much clearer with a few lines of text and a couple of nicely done drawings another of the topics that the OCCC discussed was the situation and I'm sure we've all been in this situation at some stage where a group of close friends or maybe even extended family or something like that they, they ask you to do some magic for them. It might be for somebody's birthday or a special celebration, an anniversary, or it might be just as a get to family get-together and they think it would be fun to watch some magic. And it's nice. It's nice to be asked. But there is a certain pressure or difficulty, I think, 
with trying to entertain people who you know very, very well and who know you extremely well too. Because when you go out normally when you perform, you, you turn up at your group of people at a table or a, in a mix and mingle situation, you walk up to a group of people having a drink and the chances are you, you won't know any of them. I mean, if you work a lot locally, you may occasionally see people, but it's unlikely you're going to, to find somebody you know very, very well. And so they don't know you and you don't know them. And so when you do your performing personality, the version of you that you do when you're entertaining, to them, that is what you're like. And they accept you as the magician who does amazing things and who's funny, uh, perhaps, and, uh, and, and who's really, really interesting. They accept you at that level because they know nothing else about you. And you know very little or nothing about the audience, apart from the couple of things you might glean as you're with them. But you know nothing about them. So you don't know their background, what kind of day they've had. You know nothing. So you you don't have to take that into account. You just perform as you do for all the groups and you give it your all. And hopefully, you know, everybody has a good time. Now, when you're asked to entertain family and friends, suddenly all of this uh, kind of goes out of the window really because you they know you very well and you know them extremely well too so it changes the relationship once you start to perform if instead of being the normal you you suddenly go ding and you kind of switch on as if you're I think if you're a good performer you you should do when you entertain then if you start to switch and you become they suddenly see a different side of you which they may never have seen before they don't react or respond to you in the normal way that an audience might because they know you they're very familiar with you so they might they might give you a hard time in the way that that normal lay people wouldn't do when they watch the magic or they'll they'll interrupt you or or in some way try to disrupt you just for fun perhaps but because they know you, there's no reserve there. And from your point of view, so you're, you're entertaining them and you're having fun and you do the stuff. When you get to the end of that show, what, although you might sort of switch on, switching off your performing personality and just becoming you again, it, if, well, certainly to me anyway, it feels a bit odd. In fact, I, I try to avoid performing for family and friends if I can possibly avoid it. Some of my friends have virtually, who I've known for decades, have hardly ever seen me do anything live because I, I, they don't ask me and I don't offer it. Um, and the only time they see me is when I, they happen to be attending an event that I'm performing at. Then, of course, they do get to see it. But it's not just a close family group. This is in more of a, a big, normal commercial situation, a dinner or something like that. So I'm in my my performance mode and they understand that because I'm not just talking to them. I'm talking to all the other guests as well. And so they, they naturally make allowances and they don't tend to interact much with you because they because there are other people sitting around the table or in the group. So it's different. But when you have something very intimate, say at home, um, where there's just a small group of people together, when you get to the end of your show, what I do if I on the few occasions when I have performed is I will go out of the room before I start to go and get my stuff. And I'll stay out of the room for five or six minutes. Even if it doesn't take me that long to get ready, I'll wait. Then I'll come back in as, not with a da-da, literally, 
but come back in as the performer me, do my performance, however long it's going to be, 15 minutes or whatever, and then immediately I'm finished, I'll go out of the room again and I'll stay out of the room for another five or six minutes, you know, put the stuff away, but, but just keep out of the way so that they can discuss the magic A without me being there uh, and because they want to talk about it quite often. And so, I never knew he did that or... God, he's really different, isn't he, when he performs? They can talk about it and they want to talk about it, but it's kind of awkward if you're still there. So I stay out of the way, and then when I come back in the room again, the moment has passed, and and I can be just me again and not the performer me. And that's the way I've dealt with it. And, and we discussed this in our group, and, and we all we all had similar feelings of, of uh, slight discomfort about performing for people that, that we know. And in fact, in, in a funny sort of way, it kind of makes you more nervous or on edge performing for people that family or friends or people you know well than it does with, with strangers. It's almost as if you're you're worried that they will judge you as the, the performer you because they know you so well already and they can see the changes. So it's interesting, isn't it? If you've ever performed for family or friends, um, how have you found it? Have you found it to be difficult or do you just get on and do it? Well, there we are. That's another podcast finished. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a really great month coming up. And of course, next month, um, those of you who do shows probably be quite busy because it'll be uh, it'll be December. But I'll be here nonetheless, ready to chat to you again and hopefully uh, get your December off to a good start, too. So thanks for listening and bye for now.